when you have a crisis in the backwoods of some part of the world that doesn't matter to you, like for example, if some renegade goes and shoots up a mosque in New Zealand, well, suddenly everyone in the world thinks like, well, a mosque might be shot up in my town. So I'm going to hate on Trump supporters. And it sort of becomes everybody's crisis. Whereas 20 years ago, that would have been local news. So the intent load back then was restricted in scope. But with globalized news, 24-hour news cycle, and social media all kind of compounded, a small crisis in the corner of the world is going to suddenly become everybody's shared intent load in the entire world. So like all it takes is kind of a savvy studio exec and producer to tap into that and say, well, I know an action code for that. And you can just grab them all up with one movie. All right, everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. And this week we're talking with Eric Jacobus. Eric is a very fascinating guy. He's basically a Girardian stuntman. He's a professional stuntman and motion designer, action designer for movies and video games. That's what he does professionally. But he also has a long running independent intellectual project organized around what he calls the art of violence. It's basically a theory of violence and a theory of how we perceive violence. And it draws on Rene Girard. It draws on the anthropology of Eric Gans. And this is an extended project he's been working on that is really quite interesting. So very on brand for the podcast, I thought, and I wanted to get him on to learn more about his ideas and also how he blends this lifestyle of being a professional stuntman and uh, doing this life of independent philosophy as well. So really enjoyed it. We talk all about the role of mirror neurons in the perception of violence. We talk about the relationship between social crises and how we expect violence to look. We talk about how 9-11 changed the representation of violence in movies and why. We talked about the puzzle of why mainstream cinema has gotten so bad and much, much more. He's a super interesting guy. This is chock full of very bold hypotheses. We even talk a little bit about autism. He thinks his theory has some possible extensions to autism. This is chock full of very stimulating, bold hypotheses, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So yeah, I look forward to hearing what you think. Let me know. And you can find more about Eric's work online. He actually has a fairly large YouTube channel at Eric Jacobus official, youtube.com slash Eric Jacobus official. And you can find his writing, the art of violence project at ericjacobus.com. There's also he's made some films on his YouTube channel as well. So you should go check those out. So yeah, connect with Eric if you want. I'll put links in the show notes. Other than that, let's get on to the show. All right, Eric. So the reason I'm so interested in your project is because you are a kind of independent Girardian philosopher of sorts, and you're, you're working on a serious and extended project called The Art of Violence. And yet your everyday work is not what people would often associate with this kind of intellectual work. You are a motion designer, and you actually have a pretty illustrious career doing motion design. Uh, people in my audience probably don't even know what that is or how that works. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis, what is your, your um, you know, career and how does it work to be a motion designer? Just unpack that a little bit. Right. I mean, I, I would um, qualify that by just saying I'm a, I'm a stuntman by, by nature. That was my first job and that's what I still am to this day, 20 years in. Uh, I, do a lot of, um, I do a lot of action design, a lot of stunt coordination, fight choreography. That's really been my bread and butter ever since I started. And, you know, true to kind of my independent, uh, you know, you, you said, you know, philosophical uh, background. I mean, I'm also an independent stuntman and that's really how I got my start is just by doing backyard videos and, you know, submitting those to agents and uh, to, uh, to stunt coordinators and 
trying to work my way into the system, which is like way harder than I thought because I didn't live in LA. And so, you know, what I, what I ended up doing a lot of was a lot of filmmaking, uh, figuring out the entire process of how to make a film, because that was the only way for us to show off our talents as independent stuntman. I had a small team and eventually did a feature film, did a couple of those actually, but really just had to keep a lot of day jobs. And one of those day jobs was at the Seasteading Institute, and which is uh, Patrick Friedman's company when he, he started it some time ago. And that's where I learned about Gerard and uh, mimetic theory and began applying that a little bit to action design. And over time, did, a, did some more short films, again, trying to work my way into Hollywood. Didn't quite work. I didn't, never quite made it into Hollywood, but I sort of stayed on the periphery. And then I ended up doing motion capture for video games because I was doing a lot of videos for YouTube. And then animators would watch my videos for reference when they were doing animation for games. Learned about motion capture and then started my own motion capture studio after that called Super Alloy and moved to Vegas. And here we are right now. And so a lot of a lot of what I've taken from Gerard is uh, how mimetic theory and how mirror neurons interface with action design and how to make like a very compelling action design, uh, essentially for a game or a movie. And that has turned into this sort of art of violence thesis that I'm making. Excellent. It's absolutely fascinating. And we're going to spend most of the conversation unpacking this relationship between mirror neurons and your reading of Gerard and how that informs your unique philosophy of, of action design. But before we do that, I just want to prod you a little bit more on, because I find it really fascinating how your business actually works. Like what, what does your life look like? I think this is com completely um, unclear to, to people who are not in this world. Like you have a big warehouse basically, and you record um, like martial arts movements, and then you basically kind of sell those designs to filmmakers is that basically the business model or say a little bit more if you would yeah it's much more b2b business where a, a game or sometimes a movie will come to us and, and say hey we've got this idea for a game combat system whatever it is uh, franchise and we would like you to make a very uh, kind of compelling action um, motion capture list essentially and what they'll do is they will uh, sometimes they come in with a very defined sort of style that they're looking for and they'll give us a lot of reference and then I'll just have to copy that and sort of figure out how to move with my body for that and then yeah after we have sort of figured out how the action is going to play out what kind of moves are going to be in the game how the character moves around I put the motion capture suit on hit record with our with our team and then we record all the movements and then those we ship off to the client and then they have these 3d animation files that they stick into the game and that might be in gameplay uh, we recently, you know, we did a, an indie game also called, called Midnight Fight Express, which is like a very, a very violent, uh, you know, brawler, kind of an old school brawler. And, you know, for that one, the designer said, hey, we just I just want to see cool stuff. I mean, you and another stuntman, you know, have it out and just, you know, beat each other up for a couple of days. And and so sometimes it's that sometimes it's very loose where the designer is just like, hey, show us show us what you got. We just want something cool. And other times the designer is very clear. No, we need the silhouettes to look like Naruto. We need the act, the movement style to be very American and sort of circular. Other times they want it very direct and kind of Japanese style, like, you know, like Demon Souls, which which I also did motion capture for not at this studio. But our studio is sort of, you know, the we're trying to provide a service, not just of motion capture, but also of designing the style of action within a game. And those of you, you know, listening who play games, sometimes games also have cinematics. And part of what we try to do also is bridge the language of action between the gameplay and the cinematic to make sure that the character kind of moves the same within the gameplay and within the cinematic so that 
when when the when the uh, when you're watching the cinematic within the game, the character's doing really cool moves that you can't do in the game. That might kind of upset you as the player. And uh, so we, you know, we we try and interface there because a lot of the time, honestly, those departments don't talk to each other at game companies. And so we've sort of like tried to step in as this this mediator between you know the action side and the violent side, really between that side and the development team. And I just can I just call myself a translator in that sense. Okay, that's really really cool work. So there, this is important context because this is why you're highly incentivized to think really hard about what violence is and what violence looks like and and because basically if you can have a unique edge in how you theorize it perhaps more correctly or more compellingly than other you know action designers you will you know be able to produce better work and be more in demand so this is a really unique and interesting context where you're doing commercial kind of artistic work but you're highly motivated to think seriously about anthropology and and philosophy. So I just wanted to give people that context for, for, you know, the, the, your background and, and how you've come to this close study of, of the nature of violence. It's absolutely fascinating. So let's start unpacking a little bit about your, your kind of overarching theory. You have this, uh, extended project called the art of violence, which currently is a series of essays. And I think you have other plans for it as well. And this is where you're basically uh, summarizing your, unique mental models around the relationship between violence and mirror neurons. And it's particularly informed by Gerard. So why don't we just start at a high level and then I'll kind of prod you to unpack it. How would you summarize the basic thesis for, for our audience? Basic thesis of the art of violence is that the way that we perceive violence in media is directly related to the crisis that most recently happened, as well as previous crises. And these crises are with are outside of our control. And so by designing action according to that crisis, you can tap into the perception of people in a way that could be very helpful. I think in some ways it could also be very harmful. And I'll be perfectly honest about that because this is a totally apolitical, um, this is a totally apolitical model because the debate has been whether or not games cause violence or or, or prevent violence. I think that. Both could be true, possibly, or maybe neither are true. Perhaps, it's, perhaps games is just an offshoot of it. And so we totally, we totally divorce ourselves from the politics of the issue. Uh, the, the the point is to create a study to understand how people perceive violence. Okay, so let's start with mirror neurons. What are mirror neurons, and why is this important for understanding the nature of violence, but also the the kind of representations of violence and, and the meaning of representations of violence. So mirror neurons are the, um, it, it's sort of a, a mirror mechanism of the, uh, of the motor system. So for example, if I were to hold up a coffee mug, for example, and this, this works in a lot of ways. In fact, I'll, I'll start a little bit simpler. If I were to reach out my hand in a shaking gesture like this, essentially what your mirror neuron system does is it creates a virtualization model of what I intend to do by doing this based on the shape of my hand, based on my facial expressions, body language. There's more that goes into it than we can really consciously understand. It's just sort of something that we develop by doing it ourselves, which Giacomo Rizzolatti, who wrote sort of the compendium of, of mirror neurons, uh, mirrors in the brain, I highly recommend it, especially to Girardians. And it's, it's this book right here. I've got it. 
he, he the way that he uh, coins it as action understanding is that by doing something you, more and more and more you build the neuron to motor system connection to understand the intention of other people doing that thing so it's it goes uh, it goes with shaking hands it also uh, is a, an interface with objects so if i were to hold up a cup like this and i were to offer you this cup then the mirror neurons, the, the virtualization within your brain will probably form a hand gesture like this. And you might even feel it within your hand to do it. Some people who have echopraxia or echolalia might have an issue not doing it, actually. There might be a, an, a, a, an inhibition problem there. But then if I were to offer you the cup this way, then the virtualization system actually changes depending, depending on what object is presented, right? And this also is a, is a very interesting uh, examination of how autistic people interface with objects, which we can get more into later. But <clears throat> essentially, uh, this is not unique to humans also. And uh, let me back up real quick. Gerard was where I first heard about mirror neurons and the way that he uh, defined them is that it's basically the system which is how we mimic desire from people. And Rizzolatti sort of goes a layer deeper than that, which is that we are mimicking intention like we are downloading the intention of people by uh, by observing them and our mirror neuron system creates a virtualization system that is going to try and predict what they're trying to do. And then that way we can sort of, you know, figure out what we're supposed to do in response. And this is also true in the animal level. And this is where, you know, Rizzolatti, he, his, his study was accidental. Actually, the, his finding the mirror neurons is totally accidental. He was studying macaque monkeys and he was just trying to figure out, you know, what neuron within the macaque monkey fired when the monkey picked up a banana. And what happened was that, you know, they found it and all this, and they're doing all these studies. And then the, the story goes, and who knows if it's really true, but I mean, this is, this is the true effect of a mirror neuron system is that somebody, somebody at, the, uh, at the lab picked up a banana and the same neuron fired in the monkey's brain, like the same beep clicked off. So they realized that there was a mirror function within monkeys, <clears throat> did some more studies and basically found that uh, a, a lot of animals, perhaps all animals have this sort of mirror function within their neuron system. Now that is a um, that poses a very interesting question because what uh, regards as as regards violence, right? Like Gerard posited this theory called uh, escalation to extremes, and this is the theory that essentially when two people are locked into the heat of battle, they tend to escalate the violence toward each other, and I never quite understood why that was, and. He, as far as I know, as far as I've read, in battling to the end, he never really gives a full scientific breakdown as to why this happens. And that is something that's very unique with people, and we can observe it you know, throughout history, is that when people start fighting, there's a tendency to just escalate. It'll do one of two things. It'll either escalate or de-escalate. There's really only two options, unless you're sparring, right? But then you have sort of outside mediators making sure that nothing escalates. But with animals, <laughs> when, it, when two lions fight, they escalate to a point, but they don't kill each other. And it's very interesting, the same with monkeys for the most part. And the question is, why, why do animals do this and people don't? Uh, excuse me. Why do animals not kill each other, but people do? Like, why do we murder? Why do we escalate to death? And why do we do this so quickly? And I think that the answer lies within uh, the, the, the research of this fellow named uh, Eric Gans. And he writes, uh, he writes something called generative anthropology. And I highly recommend this as well for your, uh, for your listeners to research this because uh, in his originary hypothesis, uh, he posits an origin of mankind 
as essentially beginning with the development of language and represent, representational language. And, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of leave GA at that, but then that got me thinking, okay, I think that the difference between animals and humans is that we have tools and they don't. So with an animal, if two animals are locked in combat, right, two lions, then lion claws basically meet their match with lion fur. <laughs> it's very difficult to kill another lion if you're a lion. It's just, it tends not to happen, it almost never happens. And they don't really escalate. And if a lion puts its paw behind its back, the other lion reads that as, well, he's just got a paw behind his back. But if a human puts his hand behind his back, you have no idea what he has. Okay. Okay. So basically there is for humans, this kind of larger sphere of, of considerations that have, have to get pulled into the calculations of different agents. Uh, one of those things being, being tools, because there's this leverage that human brings introduced into the mix. Uh, suddenly the calculations be, uh, become a little bit more uh, sensitive and things compound and there's, there, there's, there's, there's more to worry about in a way. And I think also what you say regarding crisis is kind of similar. It's like this kind of background contextual factor that then feeds into how we interpret very basic things like someone holding their hand out to us, whether that means they're going to, you know, hurt us or uh, kill us. Uh, the, the, in your theory, there's this kind of background contextual variable that you call uh, crisis. So let's talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by crisis and what is kind of the causal significance of these of these crisis periods? Uh, connect how that feeds into the mirror neurons. So in the uh, in the originary scene that Eric Gans talks about in generative anthropology, the original crisis is the fear of total extermination due to escalation of extremes among people. Right. So the idea being that, let's say that a bunch of people are gathered around a, a carcass of a deer. Uh, the alpha male within animal societies is going to basically divide up the, the meat. However, he decides he's going to eat most of it. He's going to divide up the rest. Right. And then betas can challenge him uh, due to due to the functioning of the mirror neuron system. Uh, you know, if that alpha is instead a, a human hunter, well, then you have multiple issues at hand. One is that you've got all the betas around you who have their hands behind their backs, which might, they might have rocks. And the other can, and the other issue is that there is also potentially a domino effect that if one of them throws a rock at you and then you throw a rock back, there might be an escalation to extremes where we all kill each other. And that's a real like kind of a, a real crisis that is, you know, it could be self-manifested. It could also just be learned through time uh, over the course of generations where people say, well, let's not kill it. Let's not stone each other over the meat because that killed a bunch of people a long time ago. So the crisis of violent extermination of yourselves is very real and it sort of looms within all of these situations where, again, if I have my hand behind my back and I have a certain affect, you're trying to figure out what that is, and you could interpret that as, you know, sort of remembering all the crises in, in the past about like, we could kill, we could exterminate mankind. We could have World War II over this situation right now. Right. But I guess in modernity, this is kind of repressed, isn't it? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. I think that it finds outlets in all kinds of strange ways, probably in music. I mean, really in ancient society, it's, it's repressed in a lot of ways too. It's, it's almost not any different, except they just had, you know, very uh, uh, honest names for it. So, for example, they had you know, a lot of music that they would play, which was demon uh, exorcism rituals and things like that. And that was that was the purpose of music. A lot of times was to chase away demons. You had Saturnalia festivals where you basically try and get all the demons into one place at one time with some kind of orgiastic festival. 
And then there's like a rapid expulsion of all of it, followed by fasting. And like, and you know, this is really like carnival and Lent. This is, you know, the 12 days in Epiphany. This is like kind of the standard model of every kind of Saturnalia festival. <clears throat> and, uh, and so that stuff is supposed to cleanse that mirror neuron data because that's basically an intent load that is kind of building up over time within your society, within your local group, global group in our current situation. Uh, and then during these Saturnalia festivals, like that's all supposed to be offloaded via some kind of you know, mechanism. Okay. I, I, intent load is a very interesting concept in your, in your theory that I want to return to. Uh, but before we move on, I want to ask you just a little bit more about this, this, this crisis theory. So in today's world, for instance, how do you diagnose the, the relevant kind of crisis variables that are crucial for understanding the nature of violence today? It's, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, if I could predict the next crisis, I could retire right now. Right. But well, I think you have a, I think you have a take on the fertility crisis as being kind of one example. Yeah. And I, and I don't think that I'm not predicting crisis. I'm just sort of interpreting how art interprets a crisis because a lot of it is a little bit subliminal. So for example, um, like the one you just said, we have a, a fertility crisis. And the reason that I think we have a fertility crisis is, you know, we could look at the numbers all day, but then just as a, as just a layman, if you watch a lot of action films, what do they do? Like first frame of the film, they kill the hero's son. And that's sort of a, kind of a new idea. They didn't really do this too much in the 80s from what I remember. I mean, people would probably come up with some counterexamples, but I, it, it seems as though the standard model was a little bit more optimistic in the 80s versus now it's, it's almost like, well, let's get rid of the, the, the hero's child or the hero's wife or whatever it is, eliminate his chance at having progeny and then don't, don't give it back. Don't even give it back. Don't even resolve the issue. That way we can just keep having them go down this train of destruction. And that'll sort of excuse having to be, make sequels and all that. And then there's a nice, you know, profit incentive in there as well. But yeah, the way that I read it is that it's, it seems as though like that's sort of a, um, this like mass shared intent load, like what we're talking about of this concern of not having progeny. That would just be one example of that. Okay. So, but it is, you were saying that you're not predict predicting any particular crises, but it does seem uh, specific to your theory that the mirror neurons are always at all times uh, kind of processing in the context of some kind of external background problem, threat, crisis, whatever you want to call it. Is that fair to say? Am I understanding that correctly? That's yeah, hundred percent. Okay, great. And so as an action designer and as, as a kind of theorist of violence with, you know, real concrete projects that, that you have, uh, that require you to embody and and execute a certain kind of theory of violence. Are there any other contemporary issues or background factors that you think are particularly relevant for how you perform violence today? How how violence? Looks yeah, well, today? what's interesting about that is that our our current crises are for the most part nothing new. Although we do have some crises today that we never had before, such as economic crises. It's just like global global financial markets. We also have crises of of um, you know social media seems to be uh, kind of a crisis as well because it's, it's it's this perceived crisis of not being able to speak. And uh, but in the past also there were crises that we no longer have, such as crisis of animal attacks. Uh, this is a very common issue where, you know, old uh, ancient societies, they had the crocodile in the river that they had to propitiate in order to cross the river. It's like, that's not really an issue when you start building a bridge. But before you build a bridge, the way that they're propitiating this crocodile is with a human sacrifice, for example, or maybe they'll, uh, maybe that, that 
crocodile will be insisted in some kind of myth about a dragon that you have to slay and you save the girl and then but maybe you can't save the girl until you build the bridge right so you build the bridge and then you no longer have to make the human sacrifice uh and and so i think that you know a lot of those crises are gone um for better for i don't i don't know i'm not going to make an you know not a normative statement as to whether that's good or not but it seems as though technology is sort of mitigating some of those but the current crises yeah you're talking about fertility collapse you have a violent crisis that's constantly brewing globally um and these have outlets by the way that are constantly functioning to try and, as an attempt to mitigate these things uh you have economic crises and then uh, there's also the crisis of um of the harvest right which is supposedly mitigated by gmos um gmos right yeah, genetic, genetically modified organisms, and, uh, and 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 then there's now there's the crisis of plague. Also, nothing new. Uh, plague always used to be treated as a demonic issue. Now it's sort of treated as an issue to uh, feed with pills and various you know uh, pharmaceuticals that benefit certain people uh, financially. So these are you know some examples. Yeah, got it. Okay, so these are kind of background contextual variables that influence how violence is theorized, how it's embodied, how it's performed, how, how people expect violence to look. So it's absolutely fascinating. And I think you actually have an even more extended story about how this unfolds in history. For instance, you have an interesting take about 9-11 and how 9-11 influenced uh, action design in movies. I would love for you to tell that historical narrative. I, I found that really interesting. Sure. I was, uh, I was laying in my bed. I was 18 years old and my mom woke me up and she said the World Trade Centers have been attacked. And uh, I had a very selfish thought. Um, well, I'll start by saying, you know, first of all, I was studying the Israel-Palestine conflict at the time, and it happened to be my you know, area of research at the time. So it didn't really, I don't think it quite hit me as hard as other people. Uh, I think a lot of people just weren't really aware of what was going on over there. And, um, and what, what's interesting, is, uh, at the time, I was just starting out making movies, and my passion was making Hong Kong-style action films. Now, up until that time, you had a lot of Hong Kong filmmakers, also in America. You had Hong Kong stars, Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, Michelle Yeoh, Chow Yun-Fat, Corey Yoon, Yumo Ping doing The Matrix, right? There was like this influx of Hong Kong filmmakers and action stars fleeing the uncertainty of the incoming PRC when the when Hong Kong was handed back over in 1997 so a lot of them came to America and they made some amazing films right and that was sort of the action that I wanted to make I said wow okay they've done rush hour they've done matrix like I want to do action like that where it's really flowery the movements are really kind of colorful and interesting the camera just sort of sits there and watches it also being raised on vaudeville I was just big on performances just let the camera watch people right so it wasn't like a subjective experience. It was sort of sitting back and just kind of watching the performers, right? And I really liked that kind of action and that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I was doing at the time when 9-11 happened. And then something happened within the business a year later, the Born Identity came out. And in the Born Identity, the action, I mean, the camera, the camera shakes like, like crazy. It's like this. And the, the action is very sort of subjective. It's almost as if, it's almost as if you're supposed to feel the action rather than watch it. And as kind of a diehard Hong Kong martial art fan, I really hated this at the time and I fought against it, fought it hard. But I couldn't help notice that like, this, this is actually probably how people were perceiving violence after 9-11. Because realistically, up until 9-11, what kind of, I mean, the action films up, before, you know, up until 9-11 and the comedies were 
the cubicle movie, <laughs> right? You had office space. The Matrix is a cubicle movie, by the way, right? It's, you know, it's all about how uh, we, we have all this amazing technology. Fight Club also, cubicle movie. We have all this amazing technology. We've globalized. We've got the internet and it sucks because now we can't be men, right? That, and also, or women, right? With clock watchers. And, and so like that was sort of the, 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 the crisis leading up to that. And then once 9-11 happened, suddenly things just shifted into this kind of other sort of mode where no longer were we in this sort of you know, high economy. We've got everything we want, but we're, tr we're sort of trying to bring the animal out again to suddenly like the animal's been released. How do we survive? And, and, that's, and, and a lot of people really perceive 9-11 that way because like who wasn't afraid to go fly on an airplane after 9-11, honestly? So a lot of people are sort of walking around with this PTSD of like anything can happen at any time. And I think that the reason the Born Identity movies and the, the, that kind of action, same with Taken, for example, I think that the reason that action really took off is because the average person loaded a lot of intent in their brains after 9-11 like after because suddenly there's this, again, it's the example of the hand behind the back. We don't know what's there. We don't know what's overseas. We don't know what's in that cave. We don't know what their intention is. We're trying to figure it out. We're kind of extrapolating out into this like, you know, obsessive future where we don't know if we're going to be extinct tomorrow. And that is what the average person is doing. And so that we are loading those intents into our mind. And then one way to sort of mitigate or to, I guess, resolve those is through some kind of action like born identity, where it's sort of confirmed for you that, yeah, that is true. You don't know what's happening. And here's a character that's going to sort of get you through that. And the point is not for you to watch the violence. He's doing it for you. But it's to sort of feel your way through the violence. And then you come out and you're like, whoa, what was that? Okay, there was a fight. And you're sort of like reinterpreting it, right? And and I think, yeah, and then, you know, over time, you know, I sort of, like, you know, came to terms with the fact that like, maybe I should change my action design style, right? Uh, well, that's interesting that you're kind of updating you're updating based on reality and based on your model of, of what violence is to people. So um, this would probably be a good moment to unpack this concept of intent loads. Uh, where is this concept coming from? Where did you draw this from? What's the background there? And maybe if you could just unpack it technically uh, so we can make better sense out of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example, again, it's like, um, okay, so if I come up to you on the street and I have a certain affect about me, I'm kind of walking with my you know, my, my head is forward. I have the certain, certain affect about me and I have my hand behind my back. You're the intent that you sort of automatically might load into your head. And it, again, it also depends on your personality and what you've done, right? You might load the intent that I have a knife behind my back, right? Which might be true. Okay. So intent load is basically a subjective kind of accumulation of expectation. Uh, about what the people around you are doing, basically. Right. It's the virtualization system kind of, kind of like kicking into gear and like trying to figure out what the hell is going to happen based on what somebody's doing. And it sounds like you, it sounds like you kind of think that intent loads can accumulate over very long periods of time. It's not just like an immediate uh, sensory thing. It's like, you know, if we're attacked by, you know, Islamic terrorists in some kind of big uh, high profile attack, then, you know, we can we can live for months and months with kind of this uh, expectation that, um, you know, any any plane we see in the sky might, might be crashing into something. Is that, is that how you, you see it? Yeah. And I, I think that those, I think that that model sort of exists forever. So even after the crisis is seemingly over, I mean, you can look back in time at post-war, post-World War II films, which, you know, like you look at the French new wave 
and uh, 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 you know, breathless with uh, um, Jean-Paul Belmondo, who just died. And, uh, uh, you know, you see kind of a filmmaking style that's like very sort of reactive to the, the, the recent crisis. And that that style of filmmaking lasted for decades after World War II. I mean, arguably, it still happens in art film to this day. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit niche, I guess you could say. But, you know, these crises, they kind of stick around for a long time. Now, they're not front and center. And that's not what's going to sell the most tickets. Right. And that's also not to say that there can't be two different crises that are sort of like you could you could have a very successful you know avengers film that is you know you're kind of like typical kind of greek style heroic worship film on the one hand you can have that and then you could also have something like taken in the raid also being very successful at the same time because those two crises can can coexist by all means you know the fertility crisis can coexist and then you know some crises uh you know like you know uh, concern about cities burning down for example like maybe I don't know. I mean, that might you know last for a long time too. Okay, fascinating. That that helps us understand a little better the the larger theory you're building here. So there, this is a bit of an aside, but I think this is a fun question. Do what do you make of the rise of the the all these female superheroes? And uh, you know, it seems like it seems like a common norm in movies nowadays that like um, you know Scarlett Johansson can like kick the shit out of any uh, bigger guy. Uh, what's going on there? Do you have a read on that? Yeah, I mean that might be also fertility crisis um, because as you you look at the action, the female action stars of the '80s, uh, and their main motivator was progeny. I mean that was the main thing, right? With Ripley, uh, at least in Aliens, she was protecting the girl. Sarah Connor was protecting her son. I mean these are classic, iconic heroes because their their motivations were very real. But I think you know perhaps uh, perhaps a f- fertility crisis and also the 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 i mean let's be fair men are like not exactly willing to kind of settle down and have kids either so this might this might also be like a very legitimate response by women and say like, okay well if you're not going to be the man i will and i'm going to kick your ass for it right <laughs> like you know maybe maybe a lot of guys have it coming as a result interesting what what do you think about john wick i i think that movie gets some credit for particular for supposedly being like particularly um realistic or do you ever read on that just curious yeah, I think I think John Wick. I think that the so I call these things action codes, right? Like the the sort of you know you're, you're you're targeting the crisis and sort of figuring out what the whole aesthetic is supposed to look and feel like. So that I call that the action code, and that's what we're always trying to find with the client. So if I were to like reverse engineer the action code of John Wick, which made by Chad Stahelski, who's a stunt guy, he was working with veterans for years up until then. And I actually at the studio, I was there at the studio when they were sort of getting this stuff ready, doing a previs on uh, Die Hard Five, I think it was. And one of the guys there showed me a um, uh, a video of a Marine doing a combination of you know gun stuff, very tactical shooting, and hapkido, uh, which is Korean aikido. And uh, and I looked at and he said, "Bro, this is the future." And I said, "This is crap. What is this?" And then sure enough, John Wick just like destroys the entire action cinema a couple years later. So, you know, on the one hand, you have a uh, you have kind of an influx of of veterans coming in and lending a lot of intelligence to the action design process, which I think the average person is sort of like savvy to after watching the news, because at a certain point, like you see enough soldiers on the news, you start to wonder why your action heroes aren't shooting like the soldiers. Um, Not to say that you can't have an aesthetic where it's very exaggerated, but what they were tapping into is like, well, let's, let's do something that's realistic because we're constantly inundated by this stuff in the news. And at the same time, uh, the, the thing about John Wick that was so different is that it was like a one shot kill kind of, kind of movie where man it's dangerous. It's dangerous out there. 
and it's I, I call it hard mode. <laughs> you know, like a lot of games are doing this too now, where um, like God of War, for example, or Demon Souls, the, the the whole Soulsborne genre of games, where people just want relentless difficulty because they really want to feel like they accomplished something when they get through it, versus having a you know not having your hand held and not not being so easy on the player. And I think that they tapped into that same kind of mindset with John Wick, where it's like, you really think that in any minute John Wick could die. And that's why he's always going for his gun. That's the main thing for him. He doesn't, he doesn't stand, okay, let's fight and start throwing punches. He never does that. And that was like an ideological, you know, decision that they made. Hmm. Interesting. So why did you originally think that that would not work that action code? Because I was stupid. <laughs> I was out <laughs> I would, of touch. I, just, no, I, mean, I appreciate I was, your honesty though. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting of, since, yeah. Yeah. You're such a theorist. It's just kind of yeah. interesting to think through, like, what was the theoretical mistake you made there? Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that I just I was out of touch. I had my own idea of how action should be. And I really wanted everybody to sort of fit my preferences, which is, you know, a very kind of narcissistic way of seeing the world. And uh, I, I, I like to think I've moved a little bit beyond that now, especially after having kids. Yeah, sure, sure. No, I appreciate your uh, transparency. Just I mean, any theory, no matter how good a theory is, there's always some error term, you know, it's, if, 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 it, if it predicted everything perfectly, it wouldn't be a theory, really. So fascinating. So, I mean, while we're on the topic of of just movie stuff, since you're, you're so kind of um, thoughtful about this, I have a few, maybe one or two other kind of fun, random questions. I mean, what, I've always wondered a little bit about the prevalence of of graphic violence today. I don't even know that this is necessarily true, but I have, it seems to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that moments of like ridiculously graphic violence seem more prevalent nowadays in in movies that aren't even necessarily they're not horror movies they're not like branded as gory bloody films you can be watching like a fairly random like hbo tv series or a fairly random like r-rated movie and there it's not unheard of for there to be in the middle of of the movie all of a sudden you watch someone's head get blown off and you see blood explode out of a head and i find i mean i might just be you know, um, a, a sissy or something like this, but I, I hate seeing that. And the way that this will just sometimes be thrown onto your TV unexpectedly, I find it, I like, I, I, I'm, I get really repulsed and kind of horrified and disgusted by it. I find it offensive and I actually get angry at it. I'm like, how did this become normalized? First of all, am I right? And second of all, what's going on there? Yeah, you're not alone. That's for sure. Uh, and uh, you know what, it, you know what I think it is too. It's not just the aesthetic of the head being ripped off because, you know, in the eighties, I mean, that was like one of the, the heydays of, you know, VFX, uh, special effects, you know, people like John Carpenter sort of perfecting how Gore were, or, uh, uh, um, uh, Cronenberg. I mean, like the body horror genre that he, cre that he almost created himself is just, uh, it's, it's nasty to look at, but there's, um, it's, it's still watchable because it's not, it's not vicious, but there's this kind of like, like middle school level uh, anger with this violence that it's like the villain doesn't even have a chance to give his piece before he's his head blows up. And it, this might be social media doing this uh, because social media for everybody is a crisis. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know who is not in a crisis mode on social media. Like it sucks. I mean, I'll, I will say straight up, like, you know, a lot of the depression and uh, anxiousness and or anxiety and the, the envy that I used to feel just came from that. That's why I shut it all down. It was just like, you don't need this. And a lot of the hatred, the hatred of people you disagree with, 
is just endemic on social media. It's almost like you don't know how to think any other way at a certain point. And this is, I think this is just escalation to extremes and intent loading of your audience, which is like, well, we don't know, we don't know when a crisis is going to break out. So let's just kill them proverbially before they can do anything. And maybe this works its way into these, you know, you have production meetings where producers will come in and, okay, we're doing the new such and such movie. Uh, we've got a villain. Uh, we've got this hero. Um, here's the villain. The villain embodies something that we hate. Oh, well, fine, let's kill him. Let's just kill him. And it's like, it's, it's, it's reactive and it's visceral. And, it's, and I, I'm with you, man, because I don't like that. I like it when a villain has some kind of substance and you really like the guy. It's like, I think that the golden rule of heroes and villains in filmmaking is that the villain is who you want to be but the hero is who you need to be. And I think anything short of that, you don't really have like, you don't really have the, the hero's journey, so to speak, right? You're not really gonna, you're not really gonna convince the audience that the hero overcame this stuff. I'm not quite sure that these are very cathartic movies um, and we can get into catharsis and what that means, but uh, it's, it's scratching someone's itch. I know it makes a lot of movie, a lot of money for producers, but perhaps the subscription model is sort of, uh, shielding them from actually having to make better stuff at this point, because I don't know anybody who likes that stuff. I, re I really don't. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I always kind of thought I, I was like particularly sensitive to it and, and most people find it exciting and thrilling or something like that. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe I'm out of touch with people who just hate their opponents now because I'm not on social media. <laughs> maybe that makes me out of touch now. Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a lot of people out there who just like that. Um, but I, I think that perhaps that's junk food, right? Where, right. Right. Where perhaps I, I don't know if these people would complain if you gave the hero some real weight and had him say, Oh, hold on. Let me tell you my side of things. You may disagree with me, but I'm a human. And then you kill him because you create some device, which is, yeah, I think that the 80s did this very well. And the 70s too. I mean, oh my gosh, 70s is like the, the decade of the villain. And and like that's and so like making a substantive, I don't know, I, I can't imagine somebody complaining about that. So uh, I just don't think there's a good feedback loop going on right now. Well, it, I think you might be onto something because it does seem like cinema as an art form and as an industry, it really does seem like it's it's going into this weird kind of like terminal dead end. I mean, the fact that pretty much every movie nowadays is a sequel um, and within some kind of like larger uh, like branded universe. And I think there's just a fairly widespread acknowledgement that like something is fundamentally broken about the production of new movies like they, they and, and, and of course, they're almost all overwhelmingly uh, filled up with like just the, the cruddiest kind of like political correctness and like you know kind of like feel feel good uh kind of weird weird like feel good ideologies um and and it goes the other way too i mean I, like when you look at some conservative movies too like they're just cringe they're just as cringeworthy because they're so reactive and they're so victimary now i mean it's like it's kind of embarrassing a lot of the time i would think for these for these guys right and then and then the few kind of more artful movies that are you know branded as more sophisticated but do still make it into kind of the 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 mainstream limelight the the more artsy sophisticated ones those ones are this kind of they're almost all of, of of a similar type in that it's like somewhat philosophical but incredibly depressing and nihilistic it's like uh this is what passes today for like sophistication in in cinema and so yeah i'm curious if you have like a larger read on on just this this terrible state that cinema is in today what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, just that, I mean, it, it just seems like 
okay, yeah. if you compare cinema to other industries, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, you can make a case maybe that um, mainstream music and like radio hits have, you know, become cheesier and cheesier or something like that. But in, in music, there's still like a non-trivial supply of really interesting niche, diverse, create like really creative stuff that is interesting. Whereas in cinema, it seems like the whole thing is really going down the tubes. It's like no good movies no, I got you, yeah. are getting made on, yeah. in some sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the other the other day, it was about a month ago, I found myself binging uh, these like really, really kind of low rent YouTube videos where people just go out in their backyard and shoot stuff. I don't know what it is, man. Like people shooting handguns at, at you know, uh, water balloons and, you know, cans of, of uh, nacho cheese and blowing up watermelons. And I was binging this stuff and I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And it hit me that like, <clears throat> this is sort of the new sitcom and this is the new comedy because there is no comedy anymore. Like there is no comedy that I can find. It's all very cringy and sort of, you know, uh, what would you say? It's all very, um, snide comedy now like no there's no vulnerable comedy but then these guys these guys go out in their backyard shooting watermelons and the gun you know the, the, the gun misfires and it's funny and and it's like wow there's some real vulnerability and character here and so i th and then i think that the reason youtube is excelling in that market of actually making a lot of quality stuff because like i, I just i haven't watched movies in a long time but i do watch a lot of youtube videos um I subscribe to my entertaining youtube videos and and because there's a feedback system and that feedback system is very honest. And I, people have said in the past, don't read the comments. I always say, read the comments on YouTube. I always read the comments. Interesting. You know, I, in my I, initial yeah. frame, in my initial framing of the question, I probably should have distinguished between things like Netflix yeah. and more the, yeah. the, the cinemas that you actually go to, I think, cause yeah. I think that's what I was actually thinking of right. more, more right. specifically, like, cause I love going to the cinema and my yeah. wife and I are always looking at the listings sure. Sure. and it's like very rare that we find something we want to go see. Yeah. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, um, yeah. I was going, or probably actually, I'm, I forget how old I am more, more like, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I used to go, there was like good yeah. stuff that I of wanted course. to go watch yeah. way more often. Yeah. And, and so that was specifically, um, I guess Netflix does make some good stuff. They just, I guess their model is they just fund like a, a thousand movies. 900 yeah. of them are like utter shit. Yeah. And then like a yeah. few of them are like pretty good. Yeah. 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 Uh, you bring up an interesting point, uh, which is, um, you know, when you're at a cinema, if you're, if we were to transport ourselves back 20 years ago, when cinemas were standard, there was a big difference between a movie and TV. It's a huge difference. It was like it was fundamentally different medium. You go, in, you go to the cinema to watch Terminator 2. It's an experience. And then you go and you sit and watch TV to watch your sitcom. It's Terminator 2. They know you're in the cinema. They know you've bought a ticket. They know that you're stuck there for two hours and 15 minutes. So they can sort of test you. They can sort of like make you uncomfortable a little bit. They can try, they can make you work for this. They make you sort of think harder. You have to remember a lot more. You're talking to people about your, your, your girlfriend at the time. You're going, okay, do you, what is, who's this guy getting? Oh yeah. Okay. I gotcha. I got oh, now I get it. Right. It's like a, it's like a puzzle. It's like an escape room. That is what the cinema was. And you see it in the framing too, because in cinema, they bring the camera back. Like you can see full body shots of people talking and people are just standing there wide shot talking to people talking on cameras, a lot of it. Right. But then on TV, what do they do? They bring the camera in close to the face. Now, why is that? 
And I found out the answer when I was at Comic-Con. I used to show my videos at Comic-Con at a booth. And what I was trying to do for years, I had a booth there. It costs a lot of money to do a booth at Comic-Con. It's 3,500 bucks back then for a 10 by 10. And I was just trying to get people to stop at the frigging booth because Comic-Con's like a train of people going by and they can't stop. They, they don't want to stop. And it's like, well, if I put fight scenes on, they'll want to stop because everyone at Comic-Con should like fight scenes, but they would never stop. So, and my fight scenes, Hong Kong style, very wide, right? Like people, you know, full body shots, don't cut too much. But then one time I put a fight scene up from my movie Death Grip, which had a lot of close-ups. Everybody stopped. And that's when it hit me. That's the mirror neuron interface. That's people uh, associating intent loading with the character that they see. And that is why they're not going to change the channel. It's good for ads. It's good for ads, it's good for the network, it's good for TV, not for cinema. Because in cinema, nobody's gonna change the channel, nobody's gonna leave. That makes sense. I, th I also really like your point that the specific thing about the cinema in person is that you're stuck there, you're locked there. It's captive that, audience. That's a, cru that's a crucial variable yeah. because that's both good in the sense that that allows directors to paint on a bigger canvas, basically. If they know that you're gonna be there at the second out, you know, at at the two hour mark, they can do something more ambitious with, you know, the, the initial periods. But you know what? It also helps explain why things have gone south for the cinema, precisely because the problem with captive audiences is like uh, if you have this kind of uh, herd of people who will go to the cinema at some kind of like statistically predictable level, um, you can also give them shit and they're going to be yeah. stuck there. Yeah, and you, can abuse them, yeah. you can abuse them. Yeah, but there's not going to walk out. But there is a right. feedback loop for that, which is ticket sales. I'm not sure how the feedback loop works with streaming. I don't understand it. Mm. Yeah. Well, it does seem like the the feedback loop of ticket sales at the at the cinema, that kind of does make sense because if you look at what wins in the cinema today, it's this big tent stuff, right? It's it's stuff that like you can see with your whole family and like no one's really gonna love it, but no one's gonna like object. You know, it's like a uh it's kind of how I think about it. And so that kind of makes sense because that's I mean, my theory here is that this has to do a lot with just the fragmentation of culture more generally. So everything is niche. Everything is uh, segmented. And this is just digital media. Digital media allows um, the, the production of subcultural content that really resonates for uh, a fairly small number of people because of the, just the scale of, of broadcasting on, on the global scale. So the economics are there to make, you know, uh, a, a film or a video that is only going to excite, you know, 10,000 people. But if it really, really excites 10,000 people across the 7 billion on the globe that you have, you have the economics there to just make content that excites that specific niche. And so now that we have that um, economic situation for the production of content, the, the economics for getting actual physical bodies into buildings to watch these um, works that are intended for a general audience the only thing that really makes sense for that is kind of the most generic common denominator stuff. And, and now that to, to, to the common sensibility today, that's, a, that's accustomed to really, really on point digital content that just speaks to their personality so much in comparison to that, going to watch like the next big tent, like uh third, third uh, sequel um, is just like, it, it doesn't hit. It's like, this is lame. This is boring for most people. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot going on there with, with kind of the digital revolution. Um, uh, but also like you were, like you were saying about, about mirror neurons. Can so I, let's I, go I, back. Can I talk yeah, real please. quick about just global filmmaking though? Uh, 
something sure, something yeah. interesting happened at the video stores back in like 1994. Suddenly, all the DVD covers looked the same. You had three faces on the DVD cover and, the, and like a landscape underneath. Like every DVD, it could be it could have been a comedy, it could have been a horror, an action film. It was three faces, three names, landscape, and title. And that that and all the you know at the same time we're all we're all looking at Japan and Hong Kong. It's like, well, why do they have such interesting you know cover art for their for their movies? I want that cover art and. Uh, I think that the reason that this happened in, you know, 95 or so is that like, that's really kind of when the distribution markets and film really globalized. And that's when these sort of channels had been figured out for the most part. And they haven't changed. They haven't changed a whole lot aside from China, China being like the huge elephant in the room that changed at one point, And like, it's kind of been stuck there, but <clears throat> with any kind of um, shift and, uh, and I, frankly, I don't know if we're going to get any more globalized right now. Like, I don't think it's possible. There's no more. I mean, like, the hypothesis has reached its limit. The only thing beyond that is alien whatever. And, you know, that's sort of like an untestable hypothesis that just kind of looms for us just in case, <laughs> in case we could expand further. But until then, it's like we have basically globalized. We're done. <clears throat> and with that, we now have global news, global social media, uh, again, save for China to some extent. And that when you have a crisis in the backwoods of some part of the world that doesn't matter to you. Like, for example, if, you know, some renegade goes and, you know, shoots up a mosque in New Zealand, well, suddenly everyone in the world thinks like, well, a mosque might be shot up in my town. So I'm going to be, I'm going to hate on Trump supporters. And it sort of becomes everybody's crisis. Whereas 20 years ago, perhaps like that would have been, excuse me, that would have been local news and nobody would have cared for the most part, like, except for, you know, not that they shouldn't have cared, but it's like, it, it doesn't. So the intent load back then was uh, restricted in scope, but with globalized news, 24 hour news cycle and social media all kind of compounded and everybody's just kind of locked into this stuff all the time. A small crisis on, in the corner of the world is going to suddenly become everybody's shared intent load in the entire world. Right. And right. so like all it takes is kind of a savvy studio exec and producer to tap into that and say well i know an action code for that and you can just grab them all up with one movie okay yeah that's that's fascinating i think that that makes a lot of sense and that's that's kind of what you were talking about with the with the born identity kind of ushering in this style because my sense is that 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 really spread right for i mean it, it seems like the how would you characterize the the dominant the dominant action code, the dominant mainstream action code, it, it feels similar. It's like lots of high cut, lots of fast cuts. It's kind of chaotic. It's hard to, it's, it, it's hard to watch. It's actually like, you can't watch it. It's like, you're, it's, you described it very well before, like in, in, in most action scenes and most movies, my sense is you, it's kind of like dizzying. You're just kind of like thrown in the mix, but you're actually not really seeing what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's exactly what it is. It's sort of this, you know, cameras on the back of a, a wild hog. And you just kind of like are trying to figure out what's going on. And that's how we all felt. You know, a lot of us felt the day after 9-11. And games like Grand Theft Auto 3 also coming right after 9-11, like a month after 9-11. I don't even think Grand Theft Auto 3 knew. Like they, they couldn't have predicted this at all because it came out a month after 9-11. And Grand Theft Auto 3 with its insanity, which is sort of like in tune with all that, that just took off. And for the next what, two or three years, Grand Theft Auto games were at the top of the world charts. And the year before that, years before that, I was like, Pokemon was number one. Right. And this is right. a, this is a okay. global phenomenon. Right, right. So, okay, this is fascinating. So, you know, we've added a lot of elements here that with digital media, things are at once more fragmented, more niche, but also like you're pointing out, 
what happens in one part of the globe can suddenly become the reference point for uh, a large number of people. Right. And that probably an example of this. Yeah. yeah. Like another example of this would be like mass shooters. Yeah, probably, sure. Exactly. Which but like is, is a serious problem, but it is, it is almost as if, you know, when there's like a killer in some like part, random part of the country, yeah, Kenya. Yeah. It, it, it's as if it happened in everyone's yeah. home. Exactly. Now, exactly. Where, where, whereas, you know, that it wasn't like that yeah. before that's, that's an artifact of digital media. Exactly. Um, and then we were talking about, you know, digital media, the consumption experience is different. The it's more on a continuum with social media. Like you're scrolling through Instagram and when you get bored of that, you scroll through YouTube, but when you get bored of that, you turn on Netflix and you're kind of scrolling through, you literally scroll through all the options, the thousands and thousands of, right. And so I don't, um, I don't have it, but I used to. (laughs) Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, no, but, and, but, okay. So, so this is very fascinating. So we've kind of introduced these, these variables, um, related to kind of the contemporary, uh, digital, digital moment. How does this, how does all of this combined with the, the theory that you're building, how does this output concrete, uh, implications when it comes to your own philosophy of action design? So you're, you know, you're in the field, you're working, you're, you're developing your own action code, as you say. So tell, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? What is your action code and how are you thinking about the near future for, of, you know, representing, uh, violence in, in the, the way that's most interesting to you. Yeah. You know, if you think back at the uh, great depression, right. And in the years following the great depression, what was the most popular form of entertainment was comedy. And there is something about, and this has always been the case after a crisis because comedy, uh, comedy is a very Girardian element and sacrificial element to comedy as well. Because comedy expels, laughter expels the outsider. It's very easy to gang up on somebody with laughter and expel them. At a certain point in the past, that became a job. Somebody just said, okay, well, I'm going to be a full-time jester. That way I can just make money being expelled for a living and I'll go town to town. Or I'll just be in the king's quarter and be expelled. That became the double act where two people would get together and the the straight man would expel the fall guy, right? The, the, The heel. And then the heel would be the goofball and the straight man was like taking the place of the audience so that he was the only one doing the expulsion. So the audience didn't feel so bad. And then you have the one, uh, the, the, like the single, this is my favorite kind of comedy. You have the Charlie Chaplin's and the Buster Keaton's and the Jackie Chan's who expel themselves. And this is the, yeah, this is, this is where it gets very spiritual, right? This is where comedy doesn't just become cathartic. It becomes, um, it becomes a conversion experience. And when you have a, a, a comedian saying, hey, look, I'm a goofball. Um, I'm just like you and I'm getting expelled. I'm the one being kicked out of my house, whatever it is. Then we laugh at him. So that's the cathartic sort of release of whatever that crisis has been riding on our backs for so long. At the same time, we realize that we are just like that guy. And so that is a, that's kind of a stopgap to kind of make us question whether we should be doing that to other people. And that's where that kind of uh, very powerful, you know, comedic element that Jackie Chan and and and, and um, Chaplin perfected, that is never going to go away. Like those will always be classics. And uh, and where do you see this today? Is this are are people doing this? It sounds like you are, well, but yeah, um, I mean, what are, are there examples or what? I, I think that the you know, I mean, one example would be maybe The Rock, who's kind of a goofy kind of guy, but he's kind of like an Apollo at the same time. So he's like an he's like a funny Arnold kind of like that. Um, but he's funny, right? So you know, to answer your question, you know, the way that I would uh, approach the in the way that I am approaching these these crises is by making comedy, which 
uh, on a um, on a studio level is incredibly hard unless you're doing a sitcom. Sitcoms are a little bit you can kind of like mass produce those. But when it comes to just a good comedy, it's it's not easy at all because if you you can make a bad action, you can make an action film with bad fight scenes, but the drama is good and the action film survives somehow. Like for some reason, if the action scenes are crap, the people will sit through it and they're like, whatever, there was a fight scene, but there's good drama. But if you make a comedy with bad jokes, the movie's garbage, it's done. And so is this what you were trying to do in your short film of a few years back? Yeah, yeah I mean, my, my mentor and I did a, uh, Clayton Barber, he and I did a series called Rope-A-Dope, which was kind of a, a play on the, you know, kind of, Jackie Chan, Buster Keaton, you know, and Groundhog Day. And the the idea just being that like, let's just make something that's really fun and uh, vulnerable. And <clears throat> and the thing about doing a, a comedy like that is that if there's one element of the production that's out of place, like that joke will tank. And if the joke tanks, that you don't have a product. Like really one joke tanks in a movie and it kind of spoils the whole batch. It's like, it's almost like cooking. Uh, and and so in order to do that, you have to have kind of like a, I call it a vertically integrated production system where like every, everything kind of runs through an auteur and this, you're going to see it with, you know, Jackie Chan and Charlie Chaplin, where like, they made sure they checked all the boxes to make sure that every element of production is making sure that that gag sells. And that, that's everything from the writing to the camera design, to the editing, to the sound design and the music. I mean, like if you overscore it, it's not going to be funny. I mean, like there's so many things that you have to do to make sure that the joke sells. And then if you throw it into a studio system and the studio just has an incentive to just kind of like overtouch it and then it's not funny. It's just not going to be funny because it just goes down the assembly line. So it's a miracle that any comedies get made today at all in a studio system. But that's basically like you have a studio system is going to basically be the death of good comedy. And that's exactly where we're at today. Like how many comedies are you watching now? Yeah. So how do you think about YouTube? I mean, because Ropadope has half a million views. It's pretty good. And uh, you actually have a, a, a lot of subscribers. You have 173,000 subscribers on YouTube. So these are not trivial numbers at all. Um, is YouTube a significant part of your strategy? Are you investing in that more moving forward? Or is it just a side thing? Or how do you think about YouTube for your work? Yeah, I mean, as a distribution system, YouTube is okay. Uh, I think that it's just, it gives me hope that the general audience like, really wants this. Because I just look at the the up the, the like versus dislike ratio, and if I'm hitting above ninety five percent all the time on my videos, I might be doing something right. And you know, I've got another short film on there called Blindsided. It's got like five million views now, and I mean, that's also doing really well. That's a comedy. And <clears throat> so, you know, I would uh, I would say that you know there might be some kind of uh, distribution strategy involving crypto. I have no idea. Like this is all still beyond me. But there there might be some blockchain element of this where you can kind of free yourself from the ads because I don't like the ads. I'm kind of like, but you know, that's, that's all I got right now. Um, and that's not how I, like, I'm not making money off of ads. It's not an issue, but uh, that is a way that people try and monetize these things on YouTube. Right. Sure. And what, what is your YouTube for you? Is it just a, a fun thing on the side or is it a, a, do you see it as a serious part of your larger operations or what? I'm, I'm starting to take it more seriously. I mean, 170,000 followers um, can, can really help. Although if you just put up junk, then the algorithm starts thinking that you want to attract audience that likes junk. A lot of the audience that came onto my YouTube channel, they came on because I did some 
videos about doing Tekken moves in real life. And so a lot of them, I'm sorry, I don't know why this thing keeps going off. They, uh, they, they're kind of expecting Tekken videos a lot of the time. So it's kind of like, yeah, I could probably leverage that, but um, I'm not sure how much I could leverage it. But I, I think that there are still interesting untapped distribution methods out there that can sort of, you know, you can leverage YouTube for promoting these other distribution platforms. Like I think the blockchain might be a really good distribution method. Hmm. How do you, that's interesting. Let's talk about that then. How, how do you, if you had to guess, like what kind of models do you see as being most likely? Uh, you know, it could be, I mean, this is, I have no idea how fundraising with, with, you know, blockchain would work. Uh, potentially that's an option. Also potentially if you had, let's say you had uh, NFTs, I'm sure your audience is, is familiar with these. If you had these NFTs in your film and you could buy an NFT in the film. So for, for example, my film Cats and Jammer that I'm producing right now, uh, there's a, is a big musical element to it. And the character, uh, it's an animation. So it's all done within Unreal Engine. So it's actually a 3D file. Like when the movie gets put out, I could actually have it distributed as an exe on steam as an executable i could do that and then if you have a token maybe you could watch the movie differently but if you don't have a token maybe you could just watch it for free on youtube that would be one way of doing it and then it would incentivize people to maybe buy into tokens or split up the tokens and you know share them or maybe you have patrons who have tokens who unlock things for everybody who have the have the executable like i'm i'm in favor of all this stuff i mean i i would love to explore it more but i'm such a noob with this I'm, people are probably laughing at me right now in your comments <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no, no, dude. It's also new yeah. that it's, uh, you know, everyone's just guessing. And I think we're, we have not yet really pinned down the patterns that are going to be the dominant patterns. I think there's just a ton of experimentation and guessing as to how to utilize these technologies. And um, it's anyone's guess. So um, I'm kind of curious in your work with clients, like the, the, the production firms or whoever it is technically that hires you are, do you encounter interesting hmm, politics or kind of like cultural uh dynamics where like your vision of violence is getting pushed back against you know maybe like different kinds of vested interests um is there anything interesting there to share or i'm just gonna give one anecdote and this is not breaking any ndas or anything um a client will come to me and say we have these three characters that we're prototyping for a game or four characters or five characters right uh, and here is the smattering of the characters. There's a bunch of mix, mix of you know races and gender and all, all that, right? And then they'll say, "Can you design something?" And I'll naturally say, "Well, I have some questions. Uh, first of all, um, I need a hierarchy of their weapons, right? So if you're going to play Doom, <laughs> old school Doom, and you give me the hierarchy of the weapons, shotgun, pistol, knife, you know exactly." what the hierarchy is of those weapons. You know exactly which one is good for what situation, right? And that makes it very user-friendly and very easy to design action for these things. Because once you have these rules in place, like it's like connect four of the pieces just fall in. It's really easy. And I call that the modifier, right? Which is like, once you have the rules kind of established and you've sort of, you've got your canvas and you've got your paints and you've got, you know, your easel and everything, right? Like that's when you paint and then that's, it's easy. <clears throat> and they can usually do that. And then I'll ask them, this is the question that always gets them. Like, okay, you've got your five characters. Who's the strongest? And they don't know. They like never know. Hmm. Interesting. So that's something, you know, game designers out there, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of people on both sides, right? A lot of people are just reactive right now. And they're making art as a reactive, uh, as a reactive medium, right? A lot of, 
you know, a lot of people are making very strong women that just kill men. And a lot of people on the other side are just making like, you know, angry games about, you know, men doing bad things too, right? It's happening on both sides. And again, I'm not political about this. Both sides, please try and look at the reality of these characters a little bit, right? Like really, you know, a question, like who is this person? And if they're if they're if they're really stronger than everybody, okay, great. So they're the strongest. Who's the most agile? Who's the smartest? Oh, that person's also the most agile and also the smartest. Well, why don't you just make a game about that character, right? And this is this has ended this has ended meetings one hundred percent because it's it should be a simple question. Like you could you could list out the Greek gods and kind of figure all this out. You could list out. Terminator villains, you could list out all this, like great, you know, cinema, great games. You list out, yeah, it's here's the strongest, here's the weakest. But then if you can't do that, or here's and here's the smartest. But like if you're making your game with a bunch of characters and you can't do that thing, then well, I don't know what to do. I can't just make movement. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So I guess that explain that kind of explains how you get these uh movies where it's beautiful women kicking the ass out of larger guys because I guess, I guess they're, they basically just hire motion designers who are willing to play with this kind of like, uh, uh, this, this like flat, uh, hierarchy free. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a machine, like man. I mean, you know, like there's always yeah. going to be someone who's going to take that job. If you turn it down, it will go to somebody within five minutes. Right. If you don't answer the, if you don't answer right. the phone and say, yes, it's going to go to somebody in five minutes. Right. And that's sure. just, that's right, just right. the nature of it. So like, I, I would never blame anybody for taking a job. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think that that's, and I think that the, the, a lot of what happens in these, you know, these meeting rooms where people have these sort of like ideological ideas of how a game or a movie should be made versus just a realistic artistic reason. It's because they're bringing in producers and marketing people that are running things that they've never made movies before, or they've never made games before. They hire them out of college. These are very like academically minded people that shouldn't be making creative decisions. They just shouldn't. Right, right. Gotcha. So would you say there's anything about your larger theoretical project about the art of violence that we didn't touch on, which you think is particularly interesting or important to share with the audience? I would like to talk about autism. Okay. Um, I'm probably on the spectrum. I don't know. I don't really care if I am. <laughs> I seem though to be able to speak to these people. So when I've talked about this in the past, I've heard you know feedback from people who are on the spectrum. They say, "Dude, you said exactly what I'm talking about." So uh, there is a uh, there is an element of the mirror neuron system, which is this propensity, this almost like a well, it's a it's a tendency to mimic, right? So going back to action understanding and intent load, the way that you learn how to do something, the way that you learn how to fight is by punching. You learn how to fight by punching. So Muhammad Ali can see a punch coming a mile away because he's punched hundreds of hundreds of thousands of times. He's punched a million times. So he knows every single body movement that goes into that punch. It's not academic. It's action understanding. It's totally different, right? So you can't just watch YouTube videos and learn how to see a punch coming. You have to do it. And after doing it, it kind of builds that wiring, right? <clears throat> now, what you find with uh, uh, autistic people who are... Um, who are in uh, uh, martial arts, for example, it's very difficult to teach them. It's very difficult to get them to do what you're doing unless you somehow develop some kind of a relationship with them where they'll mimic you. So here's, here's the thing about autism, right? Is that there, science is sort of stuck in this classific classification stage of autism where they will not posit a theory. They just won't do it. And Max Mueller writes, writes about this in the Science of Language, which is like, 
you get to the classification stage and you make your theory, but they're just stuck in classification, I think, because they don't want to make people upset. But I'm pretty sure autistic people want a freaking theory by now. It's time. Like we have plenty of data. And one of the one of the kind of hypotheses is that the mirror neuron center within people with autism is broken. Another theory is that their motor system is broken. Neither are true because autistic I, people. Go ahead. Oh, are you familiar with the uh, the male brain theory, the Baron Cohen theory that? No, I have to, no, I have to that? look that up. Yeah, I'm not an expert on it, but that's 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 kind of an interesting new theory that. Uh, well, I don't think it's new. I think it's been it's been around for a little while, but um, just another one to throw on your list. But go on. Okay. Well, maybe you can check that against this one. So the idea is that, uh, well, you know, when you watch an autistic person who's an expert at something, they're the best in the world. They will monopolize that thing. So like a piano player who's autistic, they can mimic piano perfectly. <laughs> like the, like the, uh, the blind piano autistic player, like look that guy up and you will see the best piano player you've ever seen. So there is no issue with mimicry. There's no issue with motor function. No issue. There is some kind of issue with domain transfer. There's some kind of issue with you know, okay, great. You're autistic and you can play the piano. Great. You're set for life. But if you're autistic and you're an expert at organizing crayons, what are you going to do? So we need a theory to try and like change that person's expertise. It's going to be a hard shift into something that's useful. That's going to get them out of the care home. That would be the idea, right? Or, or, or like at least getting into some kind of productive endeavor. And so uh, I think that the issue with autism is not Again, not mimicry. It's not the motor system. It's that there is a strong reluctance to mimic. It's like it's not necessarily inhibitive. It's just a reluctance. It's like a disgust with mimicry. And this is something where uh, once the autistic person gains the trust of whoever the model is, then perhaps they can actually start mimicking. Uh, but until you actually break through that, the, the person can't can't mimic and can't build action understanding and so can't interpret the noise around them, which is why autistic people wear headphones, they cover their eyes because they're trying to block the sensory system off because they're so inundated with intents. So if they're inundated with intents, then that means that they have some kind of issue with, uh, with acting on them. And if we can figure out a way to get them into a new kind of action understanding so that they can begin acting on intents, they can take those headphones off, they can take the glasses off. I actually do think that this might be consistent with the male brain theory, which I, I just I was just looking at it real quick uh, to jog my memory. But what what Baron Cohen suggests is that basically there are uh, psychological differences in the brain uh, between men and women on average. And he says that autism is basically what it looks like if the male brain is just pushed to an extreme basically and that could possibly be consistent with what you're saying because i would bet i would bet you that men are less prone to mimicry that may or may not be true um but i think in, i think specifically around kind of things like gossip um being this kind of ancestral uh function of women for the most part uh women do seem to have this uh, i'm 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 really speculating yeah, i don't I know should probably keep my mouth shut i don't know <laughs> but um but but I but I but I, I could I could see why an extreme male brain would tend to um, find it hard to to mimic. Well, let me I, let me try and yeah, unravel so. why this might happen. So at around two to three years old, and if you have children, you've experienced this. At around two to three years old, your child will suddenly develop the urge to just do everything that you tell them not to do. So if you say, "Don't do that," they will do it. There is this ego development that kicks in 
Whereas before the age of two, they're sort of just mimicry machines. It's their motor systems are coming online. You know, like my, my, uh, one of my children, he's, uh, you know, when he, when he was finally able to grasp my hand, he started laughing that day. There's just a lot of stuff that kind of kicks into gear over time. And then I, as the motor system and the, what is it? The, 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 I can't remember what it's called, but all the sheaths over the neuro, over the neurons. Once that stuff is for, finally coalesced, it's around like the age of two or three. And it's at that point where, okay, they're no longer just mimicry machines. Like now the mimicry is going into the brain, but there's something stopping it and questioning. Like, wait a minute, is this your idea? Like, why would you do that? If it's not your idea, why would you do it? Why would you mimic that? Well, because I have an incentive to do it. Okay, so it passes through. Okay, another one. Oh, why would you do this? Well, because I'm not going to do it. Wait, that's not my idea. I'm not going to do it. And it becomes this revulsion where it's like, if it's not my idea, then the ego rejects it. And so if the ego rejects it full, full stop, I think that you have sort of this inhibition toward mimicry. And it's also, uh, it could work the other way around too, where if during that ego development phase where, you know, there might be children who sort of yearn to be mimicry machines. They might yearn for that connection because really there's no such thing as the I before the age of two. There's no such thing. You're just kind of the same thing as other people because you're a mimicry machine. Your mirror neuron system is just sort of firing and trying to figure out how to move, how to move your body so that you can walk around and like get out of the house and run into the street. Then when you, when you lose that, then there might be a yearning for, by some people where when the ego says, well, why are you doing that? It's like, well, because I, I want to be connected to people again. That's where I get my, my energy from. Oh, okay. That might be an extrovert. That seems to be what extroverts are. And then on the other side is the introvert that sort of inhibits it by saying, well, because it's not my idea, I'm not going to do it. I'm not just going to be a mimicry machine because I have my own ideas. I'm not going to do it unless it's on me, unless it comes from me. And so you could kind of see like someone right in the middle who's like perfectly well adjusted. Sometimes I do things that other people, sometimes I dance, sometimes I just want to have me time. And then like, as you get out from there, you have like the extroverts who just really want to dance and be around people and don't like being alone. And the introverts on the other side who hate it when extroverts tell them to dance. <laughs> right. And then as you go further out from that, like on the extrovert side, you might start getting into schizophrenia and echolalia and these other, in these other deficiencies of inhibiting mimicry where they can't help but mimic and it becomes sort of an, it becomes a disease. And then on the other side, you have perhaps autism where you can't actually mimic because you are, you are trying to stop this thing dead in its tracks because it's just disgusting to you. You don't want to mimic. And that might be the extreme on that side. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. I mean, it, it drives well with some anecdotal data around when we think about Silicon Valley and the the prevalence of of people who are on the spectrum or Aspie Aspie we might say um and it's been it's been widely noted now that um a moderate case of Asperger's can really be an economic advantage in today's economy because you get laser focused, you get really good at something specific and also you maybe are less prone to uh, mimetic rivalry, which just keeps you locked into, you know, kind of, uh, conformism and, and repeating other people's ideas. Perhaps or so localizes it's, it's, it more perhaps. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's, it's kind of interesting that Gerard is very popular now yeah. in Silicon Valley yeah. and specifically yeah. among people who think of themselves as contrarians and right. are really interested in, uh, trying to escape, yeah. uh, conformity and, and mimetic rivalries. Yeah. It, it's kind of interesting that that is an idea and a, and a body of work that is of particular interest in a yeah. social context yeah. where 
we also know Asperger's kind of uh, predominates and and is an advantage yeah. in, in that situation. Yeah, so I agree yeah, with this you. kind of speaks to your theory. I agree somewhat. with you. And I think also, you know, you, you look at um, gregariousness among uh, cattle, for example, right? Like, because because it's possible too to have sort of a, a an Aspergery animal sort of lead the pack and sort of venture out and do things that are not in the norm, right? And it's actually very difficult from what I understand to find that cow to do that. And then when one does finally move forward, like that's the one that they start following. Uh, farmers, feel free to check me in the comments on that one. And so similarly uh, in ancient society, I, who knows who knows why we have seemingly so many people who have who are on the spectrum now we it's it's really hard to know i mean people probably posit you know various uh, hormone theories and gmo theories and all that but perhaps it's just simply that we need them more than we used to because in a tribal society you 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 have such a close coalescence of people that perhaps you only need one person with you know, who's Aspie to be able to sort of read the signs and figure out the patterns to sort of like make the code that's going to make the war dance, for example, that's going to like filter out all of the, you know, whatever intent load that they're dealing with because of the neighboring cannibal tribe, for example. And these, these people seem to have been shaman, perhaps. It's very possible that these were the shaman. I, I, I could be wrong. Maybe the shaman were the much more like uh, gregarious, um, uh, you know, extroverts uh, or schizos, but my guess is that they were more on the Asperger side and that they played a very important function in like figuring out the code of the tribe to figure out like the war dance, you know, animal dances and all this, because like that's going to, that's going to help you sort of like channel all that resentment and intent load of the tribe so that you don't kill each other. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, Eric, this was awesome. We covered a ton of ground. This is really, really rich, uh, concentrated conversation with just a lot of uh, stimulating ideas and hypotheses and insights. So I just want to basically thank you for coming on. Yeah, I really you, enjoyed Justin. this. And I'm I'm going to send everyone watching and listening to your work online. People should definitely go check out your uh, theoretical work uh, organized under this title of The Art of Violence. I'll put a link in the show notes. And yeah, people should also check out your YouTube channel. Uh, great stuff on there. So I'll put a link on there as well. And people can look out for your next film coming up, which you alluded to before. It's called Cats and Jammer. Is that yeah, right? I don't think, I think it's kind of still stealthy. There's nothing to send people to yet, but uh, people can be on the lookout for that. Thanks, Justin. Love right, the Eric. podcast, man. Thank I've you been very listening much. for a while. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate that. That means a lot to me, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.